This is the Verissimus Real Estate Show. I'm Dom Marshall at Connect with Dom across all social platforms. So give me a follow there. Enjoy the good, the bad, and the funny stories from top real estate agents, small to large investors, wholesalers and flippers too, from across the nation. We'll get into personal and verissimus real estate stories. Verissimus means real. We're gonna get into the real stories to inspire you to learn and to laugh along. The goal of this show is to provide value and give you successful and replicable strategies to help grow your business and the potholes to avoid too. We're gonna to cover marketing channels, personal branding, sphere building, investing, agent attraction, talent acquisition, new technologies and automations, sales tips, and much, much more. So do one thing for me, please. If you get any value, any little nugget from this show today, please like, comment, and subscribe and let me know your thoughts. We've put a lot of work into this, so please like, comment, and subscribe. And without further ado, let's get into the show. So today we have Greg Campbell on, and Greg Campbell is a transaction engineer. That's how I like to explain Greg. He has done almost every transaction you can imagine within residential real estate and a lot of creative financing deals so especially in the current market with interest rates we're staying a little bit higher than usual it could be a lot of value here in terms of um, creating new different types of transactions for yourself it's done over I believe 600 to 700 transactions over your career so far still looking for more deals um I actually connected with Greg's funny story. Um, I just thought about this is I bought my first deal um, a little while ago and I posted it as a lease option online. And then I get a phone call from a VA and the VA is pitching me for a lease option to buy. And I was like, hmm, it's probably not a transaction for me because you're trying to do like nothing down type of deal. And I was like, it doesn't work for me, but you know, do you like working for your boss? Would you like to work for me? So I was trying to recruit the guy. And then eventually he said, no, I work for Greg. And I was like, let me, let me speak to Greg. And that's how we end up connecting. So anyway, nobody knows Greg better than Greg. So go ahead and introduce yourself, Greg. Well, you did a pretty good job. I mean, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk today. And, uh, you know, Dominic, I definitely, your learning curve is just faster than anybody I've ever seen in this business. Thank you. Um, you implement faster than anybody. So whatever you're doing, just keep doing it because uh, you're going to be miles ahead of everybody very quickly. Um, as you said earlier, my wife and I are in this real estate business. We're builders by trade. We were building houses back in the late 80s, early 90s. That that's, tells you how far back. We bought our first real estate investment back in 93, 92, 93, something like that. And, uh, you know, back then, we're talking about interest rates today. Back then, the going interest rate to get a mortgage was 9.5%. They had just come down from about 16% five years earlier, and they were slowly coming down. So buying a house was, was challenging. You had to have strong credit. Credit was really just starting to become something that the FICO score wasn't invented at that point. So we're at a time when... The banks looked across the, the table from you and said, are you worthy enough to buy it? Do you have any assets? 
So my wife and I being in our early 20s, mid 20s, we didn't have the ability to buy. Um, so we were in a construction business where we were using other people's money to build their house. Uh, so we were pro pro providing a service. So we got involved in real estate, then started working on how can we buy a piece of property, but we were working with the seller as a partner. And that slowly over time started realizing, hey, we can do this business without having to go to a bank. And then we started researching all the different forms of how per properties purchased. And uh, long of it, about within five years, we've kind of mastered every different way of buying a piece of real estate. And you know, fast forward 20, 25 years, we're still doing the same thing as we do today. We just have refined it considerably. And uh, you've got to treat it like a business. So we made a whole real estate business out of this. And uh, we shut the building business down shortly after we got into investing. And we've been, we were in Chicago, then we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. Now we reside in Wilmington, North Carolina. And we pretty much invest along the coast. So that's kind of our story. So real estate investors in about a 20 year period of time. So there's a lot of things there to unpack already. It's, you know, using other people's money, other people's right. credit, and then in a higher interest rate environment, also doing creative deals, which I'll touch on them really quick, just briefly, quick overview is lease options to buy, lease options to sell, seller financing subject to wraparounds, even going into, I don't know if you ever ventured into selling notes as well, but there's so many different ways to make a transaction happen, especially the difficult ones. Yeah, so back in the day, we were actually allowed to have the seller take back a second mortgage on a property and you put in your money, the bank would give you 80% and the seller would give you a 15% seller carry back note. So we were able to get involved in houses that way. So the seller received a good chunk of their equity, but they still took back a second. That allowed you to get the money you needed to close because banks didn't care how many people were behind them as long as they had their 20% equity position. That has changed. They don't do that today, but then that was a great tool to work with. Yeah, I actually, we had a conversation about that the other day and I'm trying to find a lender that would allow me to put a carry in second position or let them, to ask them to tell me how to best structure that deal. Um, so everything's above board, but how can you best help our viewers, anyone watching, whether an agent, investor, or wholesaler? Sure. What we have done over the years, uh, I've helped three or four individuals, I think four, that actually started their own real estate business. And now they're on their way and they've been doing real estate for 15, 20 years. Anytime somebody gets into a real estate, they get excited, they're out there, they're pushing hard. They, they come across somebody that would be interested in working with them that has shows a little bit of motivation. And if it doesn't fit the traditional mold where you can go down and get a loan, put your own money into it and buy it, if you're in a situation where you can't quite get the financing, what do you do next? And most people just say, well, this one's not going to work. And they throw the lead aside. Well, I say, call me. Let's work something out together. Yeah. I can usually structure something if there's motivation. Motivation is the key. I can structure something that's beneficial for the seller. We need to find out why the seller's selling. What's the reason? What is going on in their life that this property becomes something they need to sell versus want to sell? And if we can do that, I mean, to give you a quick example is that we helped somebody acquire a car years back. That's what they needed the equity out of the house was to acquire a car. Well, I can get a car from another source. They got the car, I got the house. So you can, you just have to solve the problem. So if there's motivation, let's talk. And then we'll together work something out financially where they both were, I benefit and the person bringing us the lead as a bird dog benefits. And then they get to learn along the way. 
what better way to learn than with our expertise and our money versus taking the risk yourself and then potentially making a mistake or losing money? Yeah, there's many times, you know, I, I've glossed over, you know, lease option to buy, to sell, seller finance and subject to, et cetera, wraparounds, et cetera, et cetera. But no deal is the exact same deal as the previous right. deal that you've done. Right. So there's been many times, and this is why I, I highly, highly value your our relationship and your time. There's been plenty of times I've called Greg and I've said, this is the scenario. I haven't came across this before. This is how I think I should do the transaction. What do you think? And it's like you're a grandmaster playing chess. You already know the next three moves because you've been there, done that, and seen it before. And then I'm like, okay, well, is the juice worth the squeeze? So based on everything you've told me, it sounds like this is a deal that I should probably walk away from or I should restructure it in a specific way. And that's the biggest problem most young investors have uh, that are barely in the business is they're anxious to buy a deal to get a, I don't like the word deal, to buy a house, to get a transaction. They're anxious to, they overlook some of the things they know they shouldn't overlook. Well, that's okay. I can just, I can worry about that later. You need to know your numbers going in. You need to know what you're going to do with the house once you've purchased it. You need to know, well, is the market going to correct? Am I going to, with the numbers I'm working with today, are they going to hold up if the market makes a 15% correction? Am I buying it with a too high of a payment where if the rents drop 10% or 20%, am I going to be now having to feed we call feed the lion. Am I going to have to feed this investment to make it work? So you've got to stand back and analyze quickly. Is this smart? Is this prudent to move forward? And most of the time, if you've got to worry about the numbers, you're paying too much for the house and you're getting into something you shouldn't. It's better to not buy something than to buy a bad deal. And I was telling another investor yesterday, I said, you can't make a, it's hard to make a, a bad deal, a good deal. It takes a lot of time and effort to turn a bad deal into a good deal. So you're better off walking away from something. But sometimes you don't know that you're making a bad deal. So that's where until you really get good at all the ins and outs of real estate, you do need to be talking to somebody that's an experience that has the experience that you don't. And if you're somewhere that you're not in our market, you know, RIA meetings, it's great to look at the, you know, I always say, walk into a RIA meeting and look at the guys in the back of the room and the women in the back of the room, they're quiet, there's nodding their heads. Strike up a conversation with them. You're, they're usually the players in the room. They're the ones that have been around and they take them out to lunch, bring in some value to them. And you'd be surprised how much you'll learn. And everybody loves to talk about real estate. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for me, getting back to your, I'm sorry, to get back to your, to answer your question is I would be more than willing to join venture with anybody as long as you have boots in the ground where the property is located. If somebody has a house in my market, sure, great. If somebody's in Tennessee and they have a house in Florida, no, there's no boots on the ground. I'm not going to get involved in that because there's just too many things that can go wrong. But if you're in Tennessee and you've got a house you know, within an hour's drive of you, by all means, we'll work something out and I'll help you get it across the finish line. Okay. And what's your, your primary market, Greg? The market that I'm in right now is it's really, it's different than any market I've worked in. I've worked in the Chicagoland market, which is, you know, that's been around for years. And it's a huge market, millions of people. I've worked in the Charlotte market, same thing, which is much larger. I'm in a small coastal community, which I think between four counties, we have about 400,000 people. So that takes me an hour in all directions. And we're right along the coast. So the, the development came along. It's not center city and it works out from the center city. It's, it's spotty. You'll have a neighborhood that's built in the 80s next to neighborhood built in 2010. So it's a really, it's a, it's a mixed bag. So for us, 
we work all aspects and all price ranges. It is easier for us to stay under the, that $400,000 price range. Most houses right now, 1,200 square foot house to give you a point of reference, 1,200 square foot house with a one car garage that's under 20 years old right now is running anywhere from 210 to 250. So that is your cookie cutter price range. Um, it's easier to re renovate a house or update a house that's only 1,200 square feet versus 2,500 square feet. But your 2,500 square foot house could be could be 450, could be 375, depending on what part of the area that I work in. So it's going to be the middle class properties on down. And I don't, we don't have a lot of low end traditional wholesales. Our wholesale pricing is 150 to 175 to buy the cheapest thing you can buy in the market. Yeah. So we, we kind of touched on this at the beginning of the interview is, you know, what, what got you into real estate and um, to progress that is, why did you fall on investing and building versus, you know, a lot of people go, I want to get licensed. I want to learn that path, start helping buyers and helping sellers. And a lot of agents never transition into investing. So what prompted you to go the other path? I think that's a great question. And you have to look at the market when I first started in real estate, when the interest rates were 9%. Yes, the price of housing was a lot cheaper, but it still was difficult to sell a house. Sometimes the first realtor that was listing for six months did not get the house sold. And it took a second realtor to do it. So the, how the market wasn't fast and furious. So the realtors were, in lack of a better term, they were hungry for the work, but they were starving at the same time. Your top level realtors owned the market. So somebody starting out as a realtor, they had to work for one of these bigger brokers or one of these bigger real estate teams because going out on your own, trying to market when you get a listing, there is no guarantee that you're going to sell the house. So today you get a listing, it's gone in two weeks, even if the market's starting to slow down. So there was no, there was none of this. Well, how am I going to find a buyer? So being a realtor at that point was, was difficult and a realtor gets a commission. They get a percentage of the sale. And uh, when I started looking at the commission structures back then, it was usually a 60-40 split for the agent walking in as a brand new agent. And then the commission structure was five or 6% on a house that was a lot less expensive than it is today. So a realtor and a, and a transaction might make $3,500. Well, when we bought a property or put it under control, we cleaned up the property, updated it, put it back on the market and resold it, whether we sold it for cash or we sold it on a lease option, we wore all the hats. We were the realtor. We sold them ourselves. We didn't have to sell them a listing it with a realtor. We were the contractor that was cleaning the property up and we were also buying it at a discount. So we were making three times minimum what the real estate commission was. There wasn't a house out there that we weren't making 12 to 15,000 on the, on the slow side, on the low side. So what I'm getting at is that the realtors had to work just as hard as we did, but their paycheck was considerably smaller unless they were the top agent and had several agents underneath them working. So that's how we... We, we weren't realtors. I had a license for a while for one reason only. Back then in the 90s, the internet didn't exist. It was in its infancy. So the only data that you could get is to go down to the courthouse yourself, or you had to have a realtor that you were friendly with. The MLS system, that was the only data service that we had. So you had to have a realtor on your team or somebody you could talk to. Otherwise, you were just, you're out there driving for dollars. All you could do, you couldn't get into houses on the MLS. Now today with the internet, and when Zillow came around, Zillow has become our, our biggest tool because you don't have to have the MLS system to be able to comp out a property. 
because today you can see the existing sales and you can get all the details on the house. So that is the major transition. That's why not being a realtor for us uh, made sense because I think per transaction, we were making more money. So how important would it be then for, you know, a realtor or, for example, a wholesaler that's doing transactions to actually transition and start investing? It depends on your data that you're getting, the, uh, the, the amount of data or how you're finding your leads. Because every lead starts with a motivated seller. And that's a big misunderstanding that almost everybody has. When you're online talking and you're listening to tapes, you're listening to YouTube videos, everything starts with a motivated seller. If you don't have a motivated seller, you're going to pay retail and you're going to go down and get a bank loan. That's the only way you're going to buy real estate. It's very, very hard to buy something creatively or buy something at a discount um, unless you find somebody that has a need more, more so than a want. So a wholesaler can do both. I think a wholesaler needs to have a realtor on their team. I said, to, like in today's market, it's important to always have a relationship with a realtor because there's going to be a house that a realtor just can't sell or they're not going to sell for what they need. And they're going to be looking for that person that says, hey, this guy over here, he's willing to put 40 grand into a house to make that house sellable, then I'll get the listing. So you always have to work with the realtors. I'm saying, I, I'm never saying not have a realtor. I'm just saying you don't necessarily have to be licensed yourself. Just have somebody on your team that has access to a realtor that can feed you some of those leads. Okay, so so let's let's run down that. When you get a motivated seller, whether yeah. that's you're a realtor or doing your own marketing, and we're not going to touch so much on marketing channels in this interview, but why is creative finance then so important to be able well, to go ahead? I think why it's important is if you're sitting on a big bankroll, then you've got the power to buy and offer cash on every transaction. If you're going down getting financing, financing is starting to get tight because the interest rates are creeping up. That makes the numbers harder to work if you're trying to keep the house as a rental. Right now in my market, the rental rates are so high that it's still, it's feasible to finance your way into a piece of property. But if that market, if the rent's correct by 15%, now there's not that much margin as there used to be. So when you're looking at a piece of real estate, creatively, you can get into it without the big outlay. You don't have to be beholden to a bank and the bank regulations. It's just what you and the seller can work out. So I think there's a time and place if there are, if you're buying a foreclosure and you don't have the capital, but you've got the credit and, but you need to close quickly and you can buy it in 30 days. Great. As long as the numbers make sense, but I find you can do more transactions long-term by learning the creative route than you ever can go through a bank. Right now I have investors calling me up constantly while the market's changing. I can't get any more money. I'm out of business. I've got my 10 houses and that's all I can do. I don't know where to get the money to get the next ones. So they're running up to this artificial wall saying, well, I'm done with real estate because I can't do it traditionally. So what do you do? You have to learn to go around the outside and figure out, well, how do I still get involved in a piece of property, but necessarily bypass the bank? And there's, a, you know, again, there's a lot of YouTube videos out there and a lot of information up on bigger pockets and some of these other websites that start you know, getting, you know, kind of teaching you, but you just have to really learn it. It's not difficult. It's just, it's just a new way of thinking. So you're not limited to your finances. You're limited to the knowledge that you have to put a deal together. Absolutely. And that's where 90% of the people that come to us, they go, I've got this house, but I'm not sure what to do with it because they haven't spent the time really researching and learning. Now, creative financing has its place as long as, and same as traditional financing. Think about this. If you paid cash for every house 
two years ago, in 2020, and you paid cash and paid sticker price, in my market, that would have been a great deal because those houses have gone up 20% since then. So would there have been a, an argument to say, it, you know, it would be prudent to be putting loans on properties at that point in time? Yes, if you're able to time the market and you've got the finances and the credit and the ability to do that, there is a time for it. But right now, as things start to tighten up a little bit, once the market starts to flatline, sellers still have to sell. You just now may have an option that allows them to sell on their timeline, as opposed to being beholden to the market. If the market gets to where it takes three or four months to sell, sometimes people have to make choices and they have to leave before the house is sold. And that's difficult. Yeah. So there's a question for us. This is, this is, I get a lot of pushback when I would contact a lot of realtors about, about deals. And then ultimately, this was early on when I was first starting. I was going, you know, the path of Zillow, Realtor.com, the MLS, trying to speak with agents and do creative deals that way. And the pushback I was getting was you can't do creative transactions in a hot market. What would you say to that? I would say they're mostly correct. They're mostly correct. It just, it's a when you're buying creatively, it's in a little bit of a needle in the haystack. You, you got, it definitely is a numbers game. But yeah. when you call somebody up and say, well, I'm going to list my house with a realtor. And then the realtor saying, well, we sold one down the street and we think we got $15,000 over asking. Creatively is a little challenging, but at the same time, there are markets that in the in any city, there are markets where somebody's still going to need to go in and put money into that house to really make that house sell for top dollar. And so you have to change your, your philosophy a little bit. Maybe you're buying a property, you're looking for something that's a little bit more rundown than you would normally like to look at, as long as once you renovate it or update the property. When I say renovation or updates, I'm talking carpet paint, appliances, maybe granite countertops. I'm not talking about raising a house to put foundations or changing windows out. We're not talking that kind of renovation. We're talking about just making a 2000 house built in 2000 capable of selling because all the systems have been replaced. Um, if you find houses that are older that have not been updated, that's going to give you a better chance to get in if you're willing to bring your time and effort into that house on behalf of the seller and you arrange an, an agreement with the seller saying, well, I'm going to bring my money in. That is kind of, we're partners. That's what I'm bringing to the partnership. Let's figure out how we're going to sell it and what we, what you're going to get and what I'm going to get. That's mm -hmm. how creative financing has worked in the last couple of years is you have to find somebody that needs something more than just listed for sale. Yeah. My, my pushback to that was, okay, I'm going to prove you wrong. I was like, I'll prove you, prove to you that I can do creative financing transactions in a hot market. And ultimately I ended up doing four flips and purchasing eight properties after that. What sure. I found was, and I totally agree with what you were saying there was, you know, you might just have to analyze more deals. You might have to market more aggressively, more conversations to get less of a yield. Um, and maybe transitioning the your criteria a little bit, but making sure that the deal works. Yeah, it has to work with bad numbers. You know, you don't want to buy something that you're overpaying for and it needs more work just because you're trying to buy a house. You're better off not buying. But I think the better answer for me would be is find the market that is conducive to what you're trying to accomplish. Like right now, I live in an area just outside of Wilmington, North Carolina. Well, Wilmington proper, New Hanover County, what we used to sell for $160 a square foot or $140 a square foot is now selling for $230 a square foot in a matter of two years. So you, you're a little leery going in saying, well, I'm going to buy this house, you know, a 1,200 square foot house for $240 because you don't know where the top market is. How much more can that house go up in value? So you're gun shot. 
So then, but if you move out 20 or 30 miles, now you're buying a house that's 190, you know that people can't afford the expensive area, so they're moving further and further out. So you're kind of finding yourself buying in the path of progress or the path of where the migration's coming. And so then you're looking at houses that fall into the same criteria. It needs 20 grand worth of work or it needs carpet and paint, or they've got a bad tenant. There's a lot of reasons why somebody wants to sell a house. A lot of it is just, I don't want to mess with it anymore. Can you come take it off my hands? But yeah. you got to pay me well to do it. So you just, like you said, you have to process enough leads. And biggest thing is you have to talk to people. That's the big mistake that most people don't do today, investors. They just want to send a letter, send a text. But if you don't yeah. get on the phone and start communicating with people, let everybody know what you do, how are you going to find that, that one house out of three or 400 that really somebody you should be talking to. If you only talk to six sellers a month, you're never going to buy a house. Yeah. So let's let's walk it walk me through your first creative transaction. We were building houses, and it normally takes. We were building houses. We were kind of on the. We weren't on the uber high end houses. But we were definitely building in executive level houses. So they were twenty five hundred square feet to four thousand square feet in the Chicagoland area. Yeah. And back then, we're $400,000 price ranges of houses we're building. And that would take us about five months to start to finish to build a house. Well, we were in a, a, a smaller area outside, about 30 miles outside of Chicago itself. And we're building a house and we're driving to the house. You know, I, when, you're, when you are the property manager and the, the owner of the, the building company, I'm on the job site daily, if not three or four times a week. So I'm driving down, getting closer to this vacant house, this vacant lot, this house that we're building. And I see this smaller house that I go by and looking at, okay. And then all of a sudden I started noticing the grass is getting longer and longer and longer. And I started seeing the newspapers rolled up at the end of the driveway, two or three of those. And when there's something going on, so that's sitting vacant. And we wanted to get involved in real estate. So we peeked in the windows and the house was vacant. A little beat up on the inside. Started knocking on the neighbor's doors and said, do you know anything about this house? Looked in the mailbox, grabbed a piece of mail, wrote down who it was. I don't know exactly how my wife found him, but she tracked the owner down. We got into a conversation and said, you know, we're building a house down the street. I'd love to be able to possibly get involved in your house. Uh, what if we do all the cleanup work and can you and I figure out a way of splitting the profits? And so we worked it out. We put an option on the house. We put our money into it. We cleaned it up. We sold the property. He got a check. We got a check. So that was our first transaction. We kind of fell into it a little bit. But the reason it worked is because we were willing to be aggressive enough to take an action. We went and knocked on the doors. We did the research. We found who the owner was. And the owner had a need. He had a house that he really wanted to get rid of, but he needed to clean it up before he could sell it. The market wasn't super hot at that point. Um, so that got us really pumped up because that was fairly simple. Our second transaction, we bought a house. We paid way too much for it. It needed way much, a lot more work than we anticipated. And it took us longer to put it together. And we didn't sell it for near as much as we thought because we didn't do our research. We didn't buy it in the right neighborhood. We didn't buy it in the right school district. We paid too much for the houses older than we anticipated. We didn't do our due diligence and crawl under the house and see that there was loaded with carpenter ants. So the house didn't work out the way we wanted. We still made money on it, but it really taught us a lesson that you cannot rush the process. Yeah. Do your due diligence, but be quick at it. Don't take three weeks. You know, you can do due diligence in a matter of a week or three or three or four days once you understand what you're looking at. So then after that, we started getting into properties and now we knew we had the right school district. We had the right address. We had the house that people wanted to move into that neighborhood. They weren't trying to move away from the neighborhood. So we did kind of, we, we were looking at properties that were distressed in better quality areas. 
And then from there, it just went, it just escalated. And then we started getting better and better. We did, our margins got better. Um, and it was easier to acquire the properties because now we've already answered the questions that everybody asked us. And we were getting good at uh, communicating and sitting down with sellers and convincing them that we are the way to go. Yeah. So for, for anyone that doesn't know what an option is, you said that when you purchased that first property, you put an option together and then split the proceeds. Can you unpack that a little yeah, bit? An option, we didn't have a real estate license at the time. So in order to sell real estate in just about every state in, the, in North Carolina, or in the, sorry, in the union, every state you have to have a license, which means you've got to go and get training to be a real estate agent. And the training really is designed to protect the public from you because you're out there working contracts and putting transactions together. So we didn't have a license, but if you have a what's called a principal interest, meaning if you have uh, a position in the property that gives you the right to make a profit by tying up the title. An option does that. An option is just an agreement between the seller and I to say, yes, Craig, I'm going to give you an option to give you the rights to buy this property um, within a certain length of time. And in our option agreement, we have the right to also improve the property on our expenses. And if we did not fulfill our option, all our improvements became the seller's property. So that was the risky part is that we did things that most people would be a little bit, ah, I don't think I want to put five or 10 grand in somebody else's house. But we figured, well, we had plenty of time on the option. I think we had a year option. So we had a year to be able to get this house closed up. And we knew if we couldn't sell it, we would find somebody to help us finance it and put a loan on the property. So we weren't afraid of that. But the idea of the option gave us the simple control that we needed. And when it was all said and done, you know, the, the closing, uh, table, the attorneys looked at all the paperwork, looked at our option, gave the seller what he had and gave us what we had on our option. So we were able to sell it above our option price. And what we took above our option price, what we that was our profit in the process minus our expenses. Yeah. So how important was it for you then to have built houses and helped people build and sell their houses previously to then take the deep dive and actually get into a deal yourself a blessing and a curse everybody saw okay. you in the advantage you were a builder <laughs> well the problem with being a builder and i'm a carpenter contractor and a carpenter by trade is that you think you could do everything yourself mm -hmm. so my wife used to tell me you got to pretend like your hands are tied behind your back you can't go out and work on these jobs every day because somebody needs to be on the phone you make more money buying and selling real estate on the phone and talking to people in person than you will ever be a contractor painting or mowing a lawn. So because I had this mindset, I've worked with my hands very well. Oh, I can do it better. I can do it cheaper. I can get this done. Well, you're only, if it takes you two months to get a house done, how many houses did I not talk to or buy because I wasn't on the phone? Yeah. So, but the knowledge I had with construction was definitely important, but today you can buy that knowledge by, by buying a home inspection. A home inspection is somebody that can go in and look at every aspect of the house and give you a report on what's wrong with the house, what's at its end of, what systems are at their end of use or end of life. So you can buy that. You don't have to have the knowledge I have in order to buy a piece of real estate. But what you do need to do is act like a business owner, not be the person working in the business, work on the business and be the guy making the decisions. Do we buy this house? Do we not? What offer do we make? as opposed to being the guy working on it you can hire somebody to manage your properties and get that work done does that make sense definitely makes sense um i think that's that's a crucial point right there and it sounds like you have a really good partner in your wife to have seen that early on well i tell you what you can't do this business alone and if you've got a spouse that is 
skeptical, that is really, really pushing, saying, oh, I want you to just keep your job, don't take this risk. Yes, it's, it's gonna be a lot more challenging. Um, my wife was a sales manager for a Yellow Page company. She has, from the very beginning, was the driving force in our building business. You know, we had built our own house, that's how we got into the building business. And uh, with that knowledge, she goes, well, I'm not gonna put that to waste because she was very aggressive. Now she got us into the Home and Flower Show in Illinois, uh, in Rosemont, which is us out of Chicago, where 300,000 people come through looking at all the booths in, in the Home and Flower Show. And I was like, oh, you gotta be kidding. She goes, well, we, if we built our house, why don't we can build something else? So she got us involved in it. So she was a driving force. So you have to have a, a spouse or a person, a significant other that you are working with, that you deal with daily. They have to be on board. If not, find a way to show them that first check. Because once you put a check in their hand, no matter how small, if it's a $3,000 check and they're going, where'd this come from? I said, well, you remember that house that we sold? Well, here's the check for it. That changes everybody's opinion about real estate in a hurry. Yeah, the proof of concept and then you're off to the races at that point. That's, right. that's, right. that's actually a good story there is to make sure that your first deal, don't rush it, really analyze it. You're better off missing bad deals and missing good deals to make sure that you're actually in a good deal for that first transaction, then you're off to the races. So, I wouldn't quit your first job to jump into this full force. We shut our building business down and it stopped our income. We had no, we didn't have the credit power to borrow money, which is probably a good thing for us because we we didn't have any future business on the books to be able to buy, you know, to be able to, to earn income to buy houses. So we couldn't do it traditionally. So that put us in a unique position to where we had to get creative. Um, but if you've got an income that is supporting your family, supporting your insurances, don't give that up. You can definitely do real estate as a side hustle until you get to a point where you understand it enough and you feel confident that you can be more of a day trader. Um, it's always nice to have a strong foundation of a handful of rental properties under your book or under your belt there before you jump in full force. I know you kind of jumped in full force and it's a sink or swim mindset and you've got to have the grit for that, but yeah. I wouldn't recommend giving it, giving up a full-time job that's paying all your living expenses to do this. I think you can work into that within the first year easily. Yeah. So, so what, what I'm hearing is one, you don't need credit to do this. Correct. You don't need to use a bank. Correct. You don't need a personal guarantee. And like, you can strengthen. You can strengthen. Go your, ahead. Your credit report's not on, on, on risk, right? Right. And then the fourth thing is you don't need to be an agent. That's correct. All the above. So essentially, anybody can do this business with the right tools and the right knowledge. I've seen people that you would say, boy, oh boy, they probably, they can't even hardly talk to their children, let alone talk to a seller and they're telling <laughs> because they just learned. Yeah. Communicating is a, is a learned skill. You can learn this business. It's not difficult. Think about any profession. There is a learning curve. That learning curve is really depending on how hard you want to go at it. I mean, you, you take a plumber. I mean, you don't become a plumber. You have to become an apprentice first. You have to learn the business. You're going to be a manager for a restaurant, you either go through some schooling, but then you really learn on the job training. So you learn from somebody until you learn enough to where you can venture out on a safe transaction. And as you start building more and more safe transactions, then you can speculate a little bit because you've got enough yeah. safe transactions under your belt. So it is a business that doesn't have a lot of overhead other than what you spend for marketing. It is a business that uh, you don't have to pay a franchise fees, but you are leveraging the greatest investment out there is real estate. You're able to, for a very small amount of money, tie up a piece of property and make the percentages on a $200,000 investment for 
under $1,000 in some cases. You know, you say on the average, you could do it for easily under 5,000. And you're leveraging the, the investment of $200,000. You buy $5,000 worth of stock and it goes up 10%. You're not making that much money. But if you're buying, if I, that same 5,000 ties up a $200,000 property and it goes up 3%, what numbers would you rather have do the math? The laws of leverage are in your favor with real estate for sure. Yeah. So from, from that first couple of transactions to now, what's your blueprint? How has it changed over time? It changes because you can't do every, like you said earlier, every house is different. Every client situation, every seller situation is different. And you have to say, okay, well, what is the seller really trying to, trying to accomplish? Are they just trying to relieve stress? Are they trying to get off from underneath the financial burden? Are they facing foreclosure? Do they have a bad tenant? You have to solve their problem. So it really comes down to, there's only about 10 or 12 different reasons why people sell houses. It's, all, it's usually financial or stress. And if you can alleviate both, and we've just learned how to do that by talking to the seller and getting the seller to understand that we're here to help them first and foremost. There's a lot of houses that we never buy, but we're in it and we're talking to the individual, the, the seller, and we're acting as a consultant. And when it's all said and done, we solve their problem, but that doesn't necessarily mean we buy the house. Our goal is to help people first and buying the property is a byproduct of that. If you keep that mindset, your reputation is strong. People see that very quickly that you're not just in it for the transaction to try to steal their house. Uh, and they realize that you're there to help. And if you buy the house, great. Um, especially like say the foreclosure market, our first goal on that is always to try to help the person save their house. Now we give them all the legal options that are available. We give them some options that maybe family members might be able to help out. But at the end of the day, if all those options, none of that works or they can't work something out with a bank, we're still here. And they've realized that we've given them avenues. But if at the end of the day, selling the house is something they have to do, well, guess what? We're the first one in line. So you have to look at all transactions, all sellers as they're human first. They're people. They're not houses. They're people. Solve their problem and you'll buy houses. Okay. So if you kept all that knowledge that you have all the way to today, but you had to start from scratch. That's always, that's always a loaded question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it because how do you start over? You wish you could do things better than you did before. It all depends on the market. But I would say there's two or three things that really, really stand out if I was to start this business again from scratch. And I see this is where everybody gets into trouble. Number one is get off the phone and learn to talk to people. Go out of your way to get good at starting conversations. I laugh when my son was younger, we get into an elevator and I tell him, I said, watch this. Before we're done, I'll be talking to all three people in the elevator. <laughs> and when we get off the elevator 30 seconds later, we're all laughing and smiling, walking away. I said, it wasn't because I'm trying to sell them something. I'm just really interested in who they are because you will always learn from something from somebody, giving them a, give them a chance to tell them about themselves. So learn how to communicate, that's number one. Number two, understand this is a business, understand marketing. We haven't gotten into marketing today, but do understand it is a numbers game. You have to find the client that you can work with. You're not gonna work with all clients. You're gonna only work with a small percentage that wanna do business with you. So you have to understand that you are gonna to talk to, or you're gonna you know, send out letters or texts or however you market to hundreds of people before you get something under contract. And if you don't understand it, I remember years ago, one person said to me, well, I put out a hundred letters last month and I just, nobody's calling me back. Mm -hmm. I go, well, you, you just haven't hit the numbers yet. He goes, well, how many do you put out? I said, well, sometimes we'll put out 3000 letters a month. 
Sometimes it's more than that, but you have to understand it is a numbers game. And the third thing is you have to let everybody know what you're doing. Everybody you meet, get on the phone, starting out, get on the phone and talk to every realtor out there. Say, I'm looking for a project. I'm looking for a property that you just don't want or you're finding it hard to sell. I'm looking for something like that. Because if you are looking for a house that somebody wants to sell, you're going to pay too much. If you're looking for a house that somebody needs to sell, now you can work out a favorable transaction for yourself. Talk to attorneys, talk to lenders, talk to everybody. You take your kids to the bus stop, let everybody know what you're doing. You go to church, let everybody know at church what you're doing. If your kids are Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, let everybody there know. Your circle of influence needs to know and be your best advocate. That's are the three things I think are important. It's really just getting your name out there, learning the business. And the fourth item would be, before you make a transaction, get your contracts or your agreements reviewed by a local attorney to make sure that you're in compliance with the state statute. That I've seen get people into more trouble than not because they take an, uh, an agreement off the internet and they use that without knowing whether that's even a legal contract. And attorneys are inexpensive to review contracts or most likely you'd strike up a conversation with an attorney. They have a contract, they'll just reach in their drawer and say, oh, use this one. This is one that we put together. And that is smart to have somebody like that on your team. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a, it's basis for any foundation of any business. You have to have customers. You have to be a consultant minded when you're doing a service oriented business. And then you got to make sure that you are doing it prudent and you're doing the, and you get your paperwork's correct. So that's, that's actually, let's unpack that last one a little bit, because when, when I started, I knew the path, I probably did two years of research and reading books and training, speaking to people like yourself before even diving in. And I sold my old business and then I was like, okay, I feel like I'm ready to take the dive. And I just jumped in. Um, but I had to speak to probably did a list of maybe 50 to 100 attorneys, spoke with all of them about these different various transactions. And 99% of them said they would never do that. Oh, they would not do a transaction like that. They don't have paperwork like that until I fell on one. So how would you suggest for someone trying to find an attorney to work with? I think that's it's easier than it, than you think it is. You yeah. have to understand almost every major metropolitan area has a real, a real estate investment group. And in that group, people are closing transactions and they have real, real estate attorneys out there that understand investors. That's what you have to look for or investor-friendly uh, attorneys. And I, once you find two or three names, then you would call the attorney up and you'll never talk to the attorney at first. You'll talk to the paralegal that answers the phone and say, I, you know, this is what I'm doing. Do you have, does one of the agents or one of the attorneys in the office, do they do, do they have any investors that do creative or owner financing? Because most, most people know a little bit about owner financing or use the term owner financing. And, yeah. oh yeah, we've got three or four investors. Perfect, you found your realtor. You're not sorry, your realtor. You found your real estate attorney. You found that person. And you can find just about any contractor, any accountant, anybody that, that's real estate oriented, investment oriented at those real meetings. That's how I found our first contractors. The first attorney that I used, we bought a house more traditionally and I used him, but talking to him over time, he was open-minded enough to learn that I had to bring everything to him. If I was to start over, I wouldn't have used him for the creative real estate investing. I'd have gone and found somebody that was already doing it because I had to teach him what these agreements are. And then he had to decide whether or not it was legal in his mind 
because they're so used to the Board of Realtors contract. Board yep. of Realtors contract was in almost every state is designed by the Board of Realtors in conjunction with the Bar Association for that state. So they all see a boilerplate. They don't even have to read it. They don't like something that's new and different. So long answer, but your RIA groups are going to be where you find those type of people that you need to be working with. This is a good segue, actually, because there's been multiple times when I've been a creative finance deal. Essentially, you can agree on almost anything within that transaction, you know, within the parameters of being legal. But ultimately, whatever is on the contract is what you're agreeing upon. There's a lot of times where I've spoke to my attorney and asked them questions. Can we do this? Can we do this? Can we do this? And they're like, I'm not sure, et cetera, et cetera. Then I call you, Greg, and you're like, you need to tell them to put this language in or guide them down this path. And this is a, so what I'm saying is an attorney is not, can also be the bottleneck to get oh, done. attorneys and accountants both can they be, they can be your bottleneck because they are, they're used to things being static. They want it all the same. They want yeah. it easy. You step outside the, the, the norms. Okay. That's where that's, that's how people break the laws. They, they go outside of that. But their norm is their contracts that they've been using for years. You bring a separate contract and they have to have the openness. When you talk to a realtor or a real, sorry, when you talk to an attorney, the, the answer is not, I don't, we can't do this. Well, let me see how we do that. You need to have somebody with that mindset. And fortunately, because real estate investing has, has become such a big deal in the United States over the last 20 years, there are attorneys in every city that do real estate. There are, there are investors in every city that do creative real estate. And think about this. I, I, I laugh, but if you go back a hundred years, how do you think they sold farm property? Nobody could go down to a bank and get a loan you know, to buy a, you know, a thousand acres. They made an agreement, they wrote it down and they got a percentage of the yield of what that acreage brought. That, that's creative financing. Yeah. It's just when the banks got into this and this, uh, everybody needs to own a house back in the 80s, and they lowered the interest rates finally. And in the 90s, things became, you go to, you, 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 you do a tradition, you go to a bank, you get a loan, you buy a house or you pay cash. So everything became standardized across the industry. People forgot that you can do things other ways. I mean, years ago, you used to be able to assume a FHA loan. You didn't have to qualify. You just signed a piece of paperwork and recorded it. Now you own the house. You don't do that anymore. Yeah. So creative financing is there. You just have to make sure you take no for an answer. Attorneys aren't always right. 99% of the time they are, but when it gets outside the box, you say, well, this might not be exactly what you're used to, but can you see a way that we can get this done? You know, as long as you're not creating fraud or consumer fraud, promising something and the paperwork says something different, and then you have a meeting of the minds, chances are it's going to fly. The attorney just has to write it to where he's comfortable defending it if you ever had to. So what's what's your current buy-in criteria? I thought about that. We do have a history of looking back and say, okay, well, what have we bought more of? Um, but really, anybody coming to me with a transaction, I'm looking for motivation. Motivation means if they're motivated, I can buy the property. Let's just give a couple of examples. Let's just use a $200,000 house. If somebody has to have $200,000 for the house, but they're allowing me to control the property through an agreement that allows me to control it, but they can wait 10 years before I liquidate them and take them out of the equation, I'm up for that. So I'm paying full retail price. I can even pay a little bit above retail price. We've done that before. 
So it depends on what the seller needs. So, or if a house needs 30 grand worth of work and the seller comes to me and says, well, I have to have full retail price, but the house needs 30 grand worth of work. You're not going to buy the house. But if the seller is says, well, I understand that either I have to do the work or give you a discount so you can do the work. It comes down to motivation. So it doesn't really matter where the value in the house is. It's the value of the transaction, whether you're getting favorable terms for yourself or you're getting equity where you're coming in. It, either way, as long as something financially benefits you and the seller both, then it's a transaction. So yes, would I say I work mostly in million dollar houses? No, I would say that's unrealistic. I would say middle-class property on down is kind of where we have cut our teeth and where we stay because I find it's easier to work those transactions because we know it. We know those markets better. Um, it's something that, you know, I know the neighborhoods. I don't know the high-end neighborhoods as well as I know the middle-class neighborhoods. So you stay in what you know and you just be the bigger fish in the smaller pond. And you have to become the person that people go to and saying, hey, I've got a house over here. I'm not sure what I want to do with it. Well, can you and I work something out? That's really the position we find ourselves in. Okay. So let's get a little bit more granular on that. Um, let's say you come across, or oh, someone brings to you, hey, I have a motivated seller. And let's say, for example, little to no equity. How do you, because you mentioned once sometimes you can pay over retail. How does how does that make any sense? Because 90% well, I, of people out there you, would say there's no way. I can give you several examples. I'll give you three examples that kind of tell you that that'll break the paradigm most people have about creative financing or just real okay. This this might blow a lot of people's minds. Oh, it's got it's gonna people are really surprised that this can actually happen. Let's start with how you pay, how you can pay over, right? Imagine buying a piece of property or, or somebody contacts you and the house is worth about $185,000. This is going back three or four years ago. Um, and that's a, that's a 1,700 square foot house, three bedroom, two bath house, brick house here in, in the Wilmington area. It's a nice house, beautiful house. It was a rental property for him. And he bought it at the very peak of the market. Uh, 2007, he bought the house. So he paid way more than what the current market value was. He had bought it for like 223 but he bought it on a 15 year mortgage, okay? The pay down was pretty quick, but the time he contacted us or we got together, he owed $197,000 on the house, but it was only worth about 185. So, but I'm looking at the loan going, okay, he's already into this loan several years. And I'm looking at the principal pay down on his current loan going, what's well, $475 every month the payments made is chipping away at that debt. Uh, and it was getting stronger from there. And I told him, I said, well, you owe more than the house is worth. I like the house because it's in pretty decent shape. I like where it's located. The only way I can buy this house is on an agreement that allows us to push this house out before we completely buy it from you and pay off your loan until the equity can return. Equity returns two ways. It either becomes more valuable, the house does, or we pay the loan down. I said, until such time, I can't be in a hurry to buy it. I'm willing to uh, take over the house, take over the control, handle the maintenance repairs, all of those things until such time that I feel it's prudent for us to sell the house. Well, at the time we were able to rent it out for what the pay down, or sorry, for what the loan was by about $50 more. But over the five or six years that we had the house, the house went back up in value. We ended up selling the house for 223. The house paid down to 158. And the rent went up to about 1650 within that time frame. But for the first two or three years, we were just, we were breaking even essentially. Um, and it was a fairly new house at the time that we got involved. So I didn't have to worry about the air conditioning 
we had to do some things to the house, but they were minor. But in the long haul, the reason it was profitable is because we held on to it longer. But we never would have gotten involved in that house if we said, oh, there's no equity, sorry, we can't buy it. The terms on that property said, this house is too nice to pass up. It's in our sweet spot. It's in our market that we already have houses in the neighborhood. We're going to be by here all the time. Our contractors, everybody that we work with live within 15, 20 minutes of the house. It made sense not to get involved because we knew down the road, this the longer we kept it, the more money this would make. And it didn't take us very long between the value increased and the loan decreased that we were profitable. Within a year, year and a half, it was profitable. But then that equity started growing, but the, by, as we kept it longer and longer and longer, I think it was by the fifth year, that's when the profit was really there. Now, and what was, your, what was your cost to get into the deal? Um, the cost of the paperwork. That's it. So that's essentially, it. essentially zero dollars. Zero dollars, because we took a problem off his hands. We took a house that was sitting vacant that need a little bit of cleanup work. And I said, if I give you the money, I can't fix the house. I said, would you rather me put the money into your house? And he said, yeah, because I got to do something with it because he was credit conscious. Yeah. So ultimately it didn't take us, it cost us much. We didn't have to put a down payment down, but it's a little bit more involved in that. It's not something that everybody, you have to be able to convince the seller that we're the person to work with who we were, what we were doing at the time. He knew of some of the other locations, uh, addresses of the houses we had. So we knew that we were in the business. He could tell by talking to us that he felt comfortable that giving us the property was the right way to go. Because we, we solved the problem for him. Basically then that going forward, he had zero expenses on our property that uh, he didn't make any money to speak on, but it was something that he knew that it was gonna be a real problem for him if he didn't do something, because it was draining him. Every time, every month that sat vacant before we got involved was, you know, I think his payment was $1,395 a month or $1,400 a month. So you identified, number one, you identified a motivated seller. Right. Num number two, all your training and communication skills up to this point allowed you to put a terms deal together. You ended up putting $0 down to buy and control, well, to control the property, to get equitable interest in the property. Right. And you ran the numbers to know, because it's within your market, to know, one, I don't need to use my own credit. Two, I don't need to put any money down. Three, a few years down the line, you turned that zero dollars, you know, minus, you know, a little bit of fix up, et cetera, and ended up walking away with, it sounds like maybe a $60,000 profit. Yeah, by the time you take out the expense over time, it wasn't that large. I mean, we had to, we had to yeah. do some things to the house. And when you have a tenant, one tenant moved and then we had to put another tenant in and we did flooring and things like that. So you're gonna, you're gonna put cost in it, but the cost, the profit was there. Now, would I make a whole business out of doing that? No, that, because that the, the numbers weren't proven going in, but I knew basically over time it would have been. So that could have been something somebody that has a full-time job could have said, you know, I love the house. It's a full brick house. It's a, it's a beautiful ranch. It's a two-car garage. It had hardwood floors. It was an executive level house, but back then it was a, you know really reasonably inexpensive. So that would be something somebody could, what my wife calls collect. It means you're not buying it for an immediate profit. You're buying it to collect down the road. You're collecting. Um, so that's not where I would start. That would be something as a byproduct if you have a base. And so this one, I didn't need this house for income. I didn't need it. It was, an, it was more of a long-term investment. Now, some of the other projects, when we talk about owner financing, um, we had a house. This is back when I lived in Illinois. Wait. Wait there, Greg, before you, before you move on, let me just touch on one more point on that, on that transaction. Yeah. Number one, I would buy all of those. 
any 100% of those I would buy personally where I'm at right now. Um, number two is when you put a tenant in there, was it a regular tenant or did you lease option it out? We did both. We did both because we thought we were going to keep this property longer term. So we put a tenant in the property because we knew we couldn't sell it right away because there was no equity in it. So we knew we had to play landlord for a while and to put a tenant in to allow the value to go back up. If I put a, a tenant in the property as a lease option, gave them the rights to buy the house, I'd have to give them a price close to what the market was at that point. Well, that market wasn't there yet. The, the value wasn't there. So I couldn't sell that property to somebody early on because what was I going to sell it for? If it was the value is 185 maybe 190 So what's in it for us? There's no equity. So we kept it as a rental property until down the road. I think we, memory serves us right. We eventually sold it to somebody that only lived in it a couple of months. So it was a very, very short-term lease option. We didn't go in with the intent for that person to live long-term. We went with the intent because we wanted to tax exchange that property into something else. And that we can, that's a conversation for another day. But it's something that we saw that the pay down was the key. Long-term wealth in real estate is really the pay down uh, and the value increase over time. Now, you're in a position where you don't have to have a paycheck every single day because you've already got investments that are bringing you money. If you're a person that has a job that's supporting your living and your, your living expenses, then you're in a position where you can take a transaction like this. But if you're a person that has jumped into this full feet, both feet forward, full forward, both feet into it, and you need a check like tomorrow, this would be the last one you'd want to buy. Yeah. But you can see as you learn more and you understand more about the financing that each house has, you can structure something that makes sense. So yeah. you make offers based on your numbers, not on what the seller wants. I think that's really important to understand. You don't always want to give the seller what they want because that doesn't necessarily mean it makes sense for you. You have to know your numbers first and then try to convince the seller that your numbers make sense for them and try to and, and teach them that what your numbers are, are the real cost. Look at these reality TV shows. They sell a house, but they don't tell you what, they don't show you the closing statement and show you the balance sheet from the accountant when they look at all their expenses. Yeah, so yeah. When, when somebody says, well, I can sell your house for 200, they don't tell you, well, it's going to cost you 5% real estate commission. It's going to cost you closing costs. It's going to cost you home inspection fees, vacancy for three or four months till it closes. Here's what you're going to net at the end. They never talk like that. Yeah, so you have to convince and talk to the sellers or what is, what's your takeaway? How much money do you expect to clear on this property after you have bought the property, after you've paid off the loan um, and what are all the expenses? So when they start to realize what their true number is, your numbers don't look so bad anymore because now all you're saying is we're cutting out all the middlemen, we're the buyer. We don't have to pay realtors. We don't have to pay home inspection prices. We don't have to pay repairs at retail. We're gonna get these things done cheaper we're bringing value to the property. So we're getting paid by us doing the property as opposed to you taking a discount. Yeah. The, the, the reason why I asked that question was essentially, would you say buying the property? That's how you went about to educate the seller to get the terms that you were looking for that made sense for you for this particular transaction. Was that a lease option then going and you put an option on the property and then you have a lease for X amount of years, or was it just an option for X amount of years and you're making yeah. payments? My preferred way is to buy it with owner financing with a deed transfers title. Yeah. That is a little bit harder to explain to somebody than a lease option. A lease option is not your first choice. 
the lease option because you don't get the tax benefits of owning the piece of property. When you do owner financing where you put some, a loan against the title to where the seller of the property acts like the bank, that's a position where then you get to write off all the taxes, you get to write off all those things. You don't, the seller doesn't have as much say going forward. When you do a lease option, a lease option essentially is you're leasing a property with the option to buy. The seller is still in control. The seller is his, his house, but he's yep. given you legal control. It's a little easier for them to understand because they all, most sellers understand what a rental property is. They understand what rental management is. Um, but obviously we take it, you know, considerably further because we handle all the maintenance repairs, closing costs, we do everything. So it's a one-stop shop for the seller. Um, but usually when we're getting involved, I'm not going to somebody that is, that can just list it with a realtor and sell it whenever they sell it. There's a reason we walked in the door. There's something going on before we start sitting down and talking to them and getting serious about making an offer. Because if it's something that they want retail value and they want to close it tomorrow, there's not a whole lot I could do with that unless I'm willing to pay that. You know, yeah. sometimes if we bought the right property, if it has a water access, sure we have. But it really comes down to it from an investment standpoint, we have to buy equity going in or fa extremely favorable terms before we get involved. So was this particular transaction, was it a lease option or a seller? That one was a lease option because we needed to act quickly on that because the lease option is faster than a, a wraparound mortgage, what we would call it. Or a, so you, uh, you, you get control with, with the lease option. You have equitable interest with just the option. Now, we said you had to wait over time until you start making money on the transaction. You had to rent it first before you could put a lease option tenant in there. So what I'm getting to is a sandwich lease option. So you go in and you purchase on a lease option with terms that are favorable. And then you can actually go out and find a tenant buyer and sell it on a lease option. And you've put no option fee, no down payment on your buy. But you could essentially, if there was enough equity in there, you could, within the next 30, 90 days, put a tenant buyer in there on another lease option to buy it at a higher purchase price. You can take an option fee, which is essentially a down payment, but I'd be very wary of using down payment to an option fee. So in the paperwork, I'd make sure it says option fee, not down payment, because now you're going in the realm of seller financing, and it's not, it's not seller financing. So essentially, you could come in with $0, control the property, sell it at a higher price, and take an option fee payment, meaning instead of wholesaling that out and taking a $10,000 wholesale fee and your job's done, you could take a $10,000 option fee and still have an equity spread when you sell it on the back end. You can, but you're simplifying it considerably. Um, yes. The thing that you got to remember, uh, especially here in North Carolina, the laws are really strict on lease options. Yep. Um, because you are a third party, you are not the individual that owns the house. So you've got to do this through an attorney uh, because if you get caught you know, breaking the state statute, that's considered consumer fraud and that's a big deal. Um, when you say we put nothing down, you have to, in your agreements, have consideration. It's called option consideration. Your consideration has to be proven. Otherwise, you're going to be acting as a realtor without a license. I've tangled with those guys before because they thought we were acting as a realtor without a license because the consideration was lower. So you have to prove that you've got consideration. So you, it's, it's not just simple, take a lease, do this, do that. You have to make sure that you are proving that you, that you are the principal, that you are that you are at financial risk if anything breaks, if the water, or the, the water heater breaks, you're responsible for it. If the air system breaks, you're responsible. 
you are acting like an owner, even though you don't have the deed on the property. See, a property manager in North Carolina, you have to have a real estate license to be a property manager for a third party. So you can't be a property manager. So you have to show consideration. And that's where the contracts get real, real sticky because um, the real estate commission here is very, very, there are people you don't want to mess with because they come down hard. But if your contracts are right and you can prove that you've got a strong principal interest, then that's okay. But the concept is right. Yes, you don't have to go, go down and get a bank loan. You don't have to put a lot of money up, but it all depends on the market. Go back three or four years, the market wasn't what it is today. Today, if you're doing the same process, the only reason a seller would really be interested in doing this on a decent house is that are you willing to give them their equity position up front? You know, so when you talk about a lease option, you've seen that you've done them yourself to where they don't even want to talk to you if you're if, if it's a if it's a decent house and they're willing to give you a little bit of a discount, but they want all cash or they want their equity. They might be willing to leave it open for a while, but they want their equity. So right now we're paying more than we've ever paid to get involved in a house because the sellers can get the houses sold quicker than they used to. So when you're in a flat market, a seller's going to be more apt to do creative financing than they are now. Yeah. So with that, that's why I get called probably two times a week. Well, can you talk to me about this owner finance? Because I see the market going that direction because it's getting harder for us to be able to buy a house. But in an area where I'm at, the market's still very fast. We've got a lot of migration from up north coming into this area. So we're in a housing shortage, which is keeping prices and the market time very, very high and very, very fast. So the concept behind owner financing is, yes, you can get in light. But the lighter you can get in, the better. But if you're able to get in light to where it makes sense for you to get involved, why not? But you've got, again, it's not every seller you talk to is going to be that person is going to meet is going to meet that criteria. They're not going to say, well, I'm willing to wait, as opposed to, I just want to sell and be done with it because the realtor says they can, they sold one down the street for this price, they can get mine sold for that. Yeah. Does that make sense? It definitely makes sense. The way that I frame it, this is not the way that I would suggest to say it to a seller, but the way I frame it conceptually in my head as I'm having these conversations is if you're looking for all cash, that's your term. That's your terms, it's all cash. I need my price. If right. you need your price, then I need my terms. Right. And then we just filter from there, pull the strings from there. You've got to have a seller willing to be open-minded to listen. And this is where the communication that we've talked about is really important. First off, they got to realize that you're real, that you are a person that can close the transaction. Second, they got to realize that you're not in it to just take every dime they have on the property. The first thing I say to everybody, and I think this is really true, is that I understand the more I can pay you, the easier it is for you to say yes. I pause and then I say, but you got to understand, I am in a business. I have to look at things differently. I'm not moving into the house. I do have to look at it differently, but I'm very calculated in what I come up with. So if it doesn't work for you and it doesn't work for me, that's okay. But I think if we really think it and kind of talk this through, there might be an answer here for you. Yeah. And what have I just done? I've told them the truth. This is exactly the way I approach it. Because I do know if I can give them retail price and buy the house, they're going to say yes, but that's not realistic for me on every case. So I have to go in with a number that I know I can work with, but anticipating where they need to be. And usually I'll know where they have to be before I present my offer, but give them the understanding. I'm not here trying to buy it, you know, 10 cents or 20 or 50 cents on the dollar. It's going to be something closer to what they would clear if they were traditionally able to get it sold. But we're going to be a much easier, much more 
uh, convenient way to sell is going through us. Yeah. So let's, let's do this really quick. And you touched on this a lot. Let's go through the pros and then the cons of these types of transactions. I can throw out a few, a few of the pros. You've touched on a few of the cons, but the pros are essentially you don't need your own credit. You don't need banks. Most of the time, you're not going to need a personal guarantee. Um, and you don't need, you don't need, you can use other people's money. You don't need to use your own funds if, if you do need to bring something to the table. So there's some pros right there and anybody can do this and get into it as so long as you do your due diligence and do everything correctly. A lot of the cons, one con that you touched on and I'll, I'll pass it back to you is, you know, knowing essentially state laws and consumer rights. So you've got to know going in, one thing is the option consideration that you touched on. What else? Well, that's where your attorney is involved is going to be real critical is to make sure that the agreements that you're using, and you're going to have to find that attorney that has that right agreement. Um, making sure your paperwork is correct, making sure that what you are promising, it reflects the paperwork. Because even if you have a signed contract, that doesn't stop somebody saying, oh, wait a minute, that's not what you were telling me. Because here's the thing you always got to remember, and this is probably really critical to understand for most people new to the business, and even people that um, are in it three or four years if they haven't had a bad experience is when you solve a seller's problem and two years go by, all of a sudden that problem they had doesn't look so big and look so drastic as it was the day they were living. So do they have a very, very short um, attention about the details of the transaction? Do they get buyer's remorse? Sure they can. If all of a sudden you're in the market, imagine buying a house two years and you have agreed on a contract and you agreed on a contract price and you're in this property as a seller finance property. And all of a sudden the equity is gone up 20 or 30%. And they look at what they're getting out of the transaction. They're looking at what the house is worth to you today. Is that not gonna set well with them? I tell you what, I've seen sellers try to get out of contracts because they see the equity position exponentially grow once they gave up control of the property. So that is something that you have to contend yourself with. So you've got to be very, very careful that your paperwork allows you to, that you can stand and close the transaction. You've got to be able to read the clients that you're working with. If somebody is really, really stressed, I will almost not buy the property because I don't want to be accused later of taking advantage of somebody under duress. I would rather fix their problem and then sit to have them sit down with an attorney and go through this and have them sign paperwork with an attorney to buy the property, just so I'm at a little bit of an arm's length of their stress that they're going through. I've learned a long time ago, I usually can talk them down off of the stress and give them the true story of what they're up against so they're a little bit calmer on the process. But I definitely wanna make sure that I'm working with somebody that is not gonna change their mind down the road um, or somebody that I just don't get along with. If somebody is, if I feel our personalities clash a little bit, I'm just gonna say, you know what? I just don't think it's gonna be worth it for us to get involved because we are creating a relationship that could last two or three years, five years, six years, depending on how long your contract is. So you have to read the person a little bit too. And then you gotta realize, are you in a power position? Are they in a power position? Or are you both equal? Meaning if you're just starting out, do you wanna be trying to buy a house from an attorney? Probably not because you're not, you're not in a power position. They know everything, you don't know anything, right? You want to buy and work with working class people, working people that are down to earth, people that are just, they want to work with you because they want to resolve their issue, but at the same time, they want to be fair. 
if you've got a fair-minded person on the other side, I think that's, you have to read that into a person. And, and you're going to make mistakes. You're going to work with people you shouldn't have worked with. But for the most part, if you just say, you know what, I just, something's not right with the, the way this relationship is developing. I think it's better for us to step aside. And that's trust, trust your intuition, trust your wife's intuition. Um, again, because it's usually correct. And that's, that's kind of where I, that's yeah. kind of how I look at every transaction. Now, the con part about it is the biggest competition we have as investors in the public's mindset is the realtors because the realtors have been around and they're, they outnumber us completely and they have one way of doing business. Make an offer, get a loan, close a house. So you are going in with something that's a little bit unconventional in the average public's mind. And you got to watch your language. You got to make sure you don't use things that are subject to or owner financing or, or wraparound mortgages. They're not, they are not sure what you're talking about. And the minute you start talking about something they don't understand, the answer is automatically no. You've got to talk to them on a level they can understand and slowly plant the seeds and get them to understand that maybe you are the answer. And that's why I come into it with a consultant mindset. I never always make, I never make an offer on the first conversation unless they, they're really looking for one. I try to just understand their situation better and say, let me get back to you. Like, you've got a unique situation. I've done with, worked with this before. Let me come up with a couple of different options that really, really work well for you. And that serves us well. So that's a, that's a good segue, actually, because I would say the path that I went is I did two plus years of learning and research and speaking to people such as yourself, um, making sure that I got to a point of if I can't teach what I'm doing to someone else, I haven't fully learned it. So for people that don't want to go through two, three potential more years of learning till they can get the competence to actually do these transactions, how should someone get started? I would say connect yourself with an investor that you can bring value to them by being a bird dog. A bird dog is somebody that's out there looking for something that looks distressed. They could be driving and saying, hey, there's a house that's vacant sitting over here. Um, if I bring you this lead and we work together, can, can we buy it and the, can we split the profits? Um, if, you are, if you communicate better than that or you can, you've got the ability to talk to sellers and you can get somebody Go start there and, and you find somebody that's got motivation, you're not sure what to do with it, join venture with myself or someone like yourself. Uh, I'm more than happy to help somebody in joint venture as long as, like I said earlier, they have boots on the ground where the house is at. Um, I think you need a mentor of some sort, whether that mentor is you're paying them um, or you're are bringing a deal and you're working a deal together. You want a piece of real estate in, uh, about every transaction until you've been in it five or six years. I mean, we still learn today. I mean, because market conditions change, technology changes. There are things out there that we have never done. Um, we, have, we have found our niche, we work in it. I would say learn your market, stay in your market long-term, try not to move around too much, keep your main market. If you want to venture out into other markets, but don't lose your whole market, because there's nothing more valuable than knowing your market, knowing the players in your market. So if you get something, you know, if you can't do it yourself, who you can approach that you can monetize that lead and get something out of it. I'd gladly pay somebody 15, 20, 30% of the transaction or even more if they're bringing more to the table, but I'm paying that in marketing anyways. So why not work with a bird dog? So if you really want to learn, why not be somebody, work with somebody like myself, but you've got to bring something to the table. 
Otherwise, the joke is, you know, bring out your credit card. You know, yeah. I'm not here to teach a seminar, but at the same time, if it, if we benefit and you benefit, why not? Look yeah. at the conversations you and I have had, and you bring benefit by your computer knowledge and your just your systems knowledge that uh, you and I are working together with. Uh, something that I can't do myself, and you're you're a master at that. So you bring something to the table in return. We have had sometimes hour-long conversations on transactions. Yeah, I do wish early on that whilst I was doing my own learning, that I started going after deals right away. Sure. Having someone to give those to, because I would have brought so many more deals already than what I already have. Well, what you know now, you can look back and realize how many you lost, but you didn't know you lost them because you didn't know what you didn't know. Exactly. And that's not saying I've lost deals because I don't know what I don't know. You know, are there deals I've lost because I didn't go out and put a loan on the property? Sure. But that's a decision we have to make. You have your parameters, your guidelines. And if your guidelines are working, you're going to have to tweak those a little bit based on the market conditions. But you stay true to what makes what's worked for you. Yeah. So let's let's wrap this up with a few quick fire questions and then we'll we'll leave off with how people can contact you, reach you, sure. or subscribe or follow, et cetera. So are you ready? Yeah, sure. All right. Best business or real estate book. Book. Book, coaching program, just something of Western. No, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of bigger pockets. I am yeah. a fan of YouTube because you can quickly understand who you should be listening to. Um, videos, I love videos because you can read facial expressions and tell if somebody's kind of fluffing. One thing I want to, as, a, as a, something I want to point out, do remember when you are online and you're looking and you're researching and you're reading and you're listening to videos and somebody is selling something, do understand they're selling it for a reason. So I'm, don't get caught up in the sales aspect that everything is a lot harder than they make it look. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It doesn't mean it's, it's, you have to have a master's degree to do it. It's just, there is a learning curve, but understand the people you're listening to online, if they're selling a product, understand they're candy coating that product and making it look so easy because why wouldn't you take it? What you want to do is try to find something that tells you the way it is and say, if you're not willing to get down and dirty as far as, you know, go out and drive eight hours to find 20 houses to spend five or six hours researching them to make three phone calls and, maybe not buy a house, but maybe the second time you do, you get somebody in the game. You don't know that you're gonna to have to put work into it. This, this thing where it says, well, I only work five hours a week in my business. Well, that's if you hire everything out. That's if you hire somebody like me to work for you or someone like yourself. If you're doing the work and you're doing all the grunt work, well then yes, you could be an asset manager. But if you're a person working in the business, you're putting in, it's a full-time job. That's one thing that frustrates me a little bit with the wholesaling gurus out there making it look so simple. And in reality, if you break down wholesaling, it's you're getting you've got to find and contract a deal that's better than what an investor would buy. Otherwise, you're not making any money. Right. Right. And you realize how low those numbers are in a hot market and the market's still hot. When you know, people are complaining about the interest rate creeping up to six percent, that's normal. Once people become realize that's normal, we're going to go back to normal. You know, that what's hurting us right now is the interest in not only creeping up to 6%, a little over 6%, is that now that 6% on an inflated value, you know, the values have gone up so high because of COVID and migration and all of that, that now you're paying 6% on a house that's 20% higher than it was three years ago. So it's not only the interest rate, it's also the inflated value. For me, so long as rents keep 
catching up to that and it slows down the market, there's less buyers. I'm actually excited for that. Rents will taper off once yeah. the real estate, traditional real estate market flatlines. Yeah. Because the flatlines, that means there's more houses available that turn into rentals. Right now, we're in a situation where we see it here is that the, the, what was a rental property, people are cashing out. Well, do you want, you want to rent and make $6,000 a year or do you want to sell the house and make forty? So landlords have gotten rid of a lot of property, really put us in a position where it's keeping rents artificially high because we're like, a, we're sort of inventory. Let me give devil's advocate to that. Would that not mean though, that would not only, yes, there might be more rental properties available, but wouldn't that push more people to rent? Both, both. I think it's, yeah. I think you're gonna get, like when I moved to Charlotte, to give you an example, when I moved to Charlotte, Back in 2002, there was 262 housing projects going up one time. That is insane. I mean, there might be 50 if we're lucky now. So when there's an overabundance of real estate, everything, rents, prices are down, uh, housing prices are down. When interest rates are going up, what's happening in, in our market, I think the interest, the, uh, the, the rental rates I meant, the rental rates are high, but what's, what you're seeing happen is that people are getting out of this mindset, I want to work 20 minutes from work. They're realizing that doesn't work anymore. When I first moved here, if I had a house that was a half hour out of Wilmington, I couldn't get it sold. Oh, that's too far out. Now, that's where the lower priced houses are. That's where the lower priced rents are. That's where people are making under $50,000 a year have to live. Because we, because this market where I'm at, at, the cheapest house is 260. You can't buy that on $50,000 if you're starting out without a big down payment. So it's pushing the market further and further out. So it's changing the dynamics of the market completely. I think you're always going to have this balance between rent and price. I like the high rents, but I've never seen them escalate this fast ever in the, in the time I've been doing this. Yep. Going back several years, it was difficult to rent a house for what it was to what your mortgage payment was. They were about equal. Yep. Not flip side. So I like it now, but it wouldn't surprise me that we see a 15 or 20% decrease in rent rates outside of your metropolitan areas. Yeah, I think that comes back. We had a conversation about this recently when I was down in Florida. Is um, It's probably more important than ever now to focus on the location of where you're buying. If you can get in a landlocked area or a desirable, you know, close to a beach, close to a school, close to a hospital, they're probably the most insulated on rent drops because of the desirability of the location. And it's all relative to your, to your acquisition costs too. If you're yeah. buying something that costs you more to get involved, it's gonna, it has to rent higher in order to make it work. We've got guys now that the beach properties are looking a little bit scary to them because they can't get the four, five and a half percent commercial loans to buy those properties. And they're looking at commercial loans at 8%. Unless we Airbnb it, the numbers just on the street rent just aren't working out. Yeah. So I had a realtor tell me, he said, we're going to see more flips now because people can't buy them and rent them long term. So they're going to flip it, take their you know, taxes, change it into something else if they can, or they're going to take the, the, the tax hit on it. Yeah. We should probably call this long, long fire questions here because we could talk forever on, on these little points. There's so much to unravel. But yeah, absolutely. Let's go to biggest mistake you've made in real estate or, or a mistake that's really just salient in your mind? You, I think we've kind of answered that is where I would be if I started out again. The biggest mistake was not getting help early on, yeah. not delegating some of the 
things that we do out to other people that I can buy their services. Um, not learning contracts as well as I should have or get the right help there. And I think the biggest mistake, it, it took us too long to understand marketing. I think if I was to start over, I would marketing would be my main focus. You could have the best chef in the world in the restaurant, but nobody's going to use food if they don't get through the front door. It's the same thing. Everything starts with that motivated seller. I know I'm beating this to death a little bit, but everything you hear online about, they'll talk for three hours about real estate, but it all starts with that motivated seller. But nobody sits there and really dials down. How do you find a motivated seller? You have to have deal flow. And on a hot, hot market, the deal flow comes in different forms. You have to, you have to change the way you buy. Um, so you have to really understand marketing to be able to get to your, your demographic that you're looking for, get the type of house you want, um, find the motivation you're looking for in order to structure something that makes sense. That's actually when I very first got started. Um, I was fortunate because I had a previous business in, in the energy sector that, that I had sold, but I didn't want to just put down 20%. I wanted to find deals. So I was like, well, before I start buying anything, the main thing to me was how do I find a deal? Mm-hmm. And then and then what does that look like? How do I structure it? So I did a lot of tweaking and playing around with different marketing systems before I actually bought anything. So that is not cheap as well. So yeah. I we can figure out the cheapest, most effective way to market to find a deal. That makes sense. Yeah, and that is, you know, you hear somebody say, well, put up bandit signs. Bandit signs are the roadside sign that says, we buy a house or sell your house fast. Okay, you put out 100 of those and you sit back and wait for the phone to ring. Well, you're not going to get the phone to ring. You're going to get the ring a little bit. It's going to trickle at best. You send out a thousand letters, the phone's going to trickle. Everything you're doing is a trickle effect. You've got to find the motivation, but you have to be in all places at one time. And it's expensive. So that's what I'm saying. Until you master that aspect of it, and there still isn't one that does one way that's better than all. You have to be everywhere. Get a couple of leads from this type of marketing and another lead from here. Um, you can buy the leads. You can buy the services. You can send out letters. You can do all of those things. But it is something that you have to find and understand what more true motivation is. So motivation, if you don't know what it is or what it looks like, you're going to spend a lot of money on marketing to things that you don't have the ability to close. So again, what I keep telling everybody is understand what a deal is, understand what you're looking for, then market to that demographic that's going to best fit that deal that you're trying to acquire. If you're going to be in the wholesale business, don't don't wholesale in Manhattan or go out to an area where the average price range of a house is $150,000 or less because it's going to be easier because more investors are going to be wanting to buy that low-end property. You don't have too many investors buying five hundred thousand dollar rehabs. Yeah, it just it just doesn't exist. I wish I wish I had that advice early on because my background is marketing and sales. So I kind of went gun ho with the marketing before I knew exactly the deals and the areas and the specifics that I was looking for. I kind of knew, but I wasted a lot of money in marketing early on um, yeah. before figuring that out. So that's that's huge advice. Um, and if you're starting out, you have to do it on the cheap, and on the cheap is talking. Is talking to everybody. You see a vacant house, you make on, knock on the neighbor's doors, try to find out who the owner is. You know, look up on white pages or some other services that you can find the owner. Try to call them. You're not going to find everybody. Look on Facebook, see if they've got a Facebook account, see what you can do to locate that individual. But then get into a conversation. And if you have to, connect yourself with someone like myself first and say, 
hey, this guy, got see you've got a house over here and you want to sell it? Yes, well, I'm working with a guy or he's my boss or you know, I, I'm just gathering information. There's a starting point because now you don't have to spend all the time and money. You don't have to have the contracts. You don't have to have everybody in place to rehab that house. But what you've done is you've done the grunt work to go out and find something that might have motivation. Yeah. So what, what's a software or system you can't live without? Um, Zillow is the one I live in. I live in Zillow a lot, for, strictly for the marketing of learning value, because value is changing constantly. Market time, I pay attention to. I look at how many, how much time the average house is by looking at the pictures of the house. I see the average condition of the house. How long has it taken it to go pending? Looking at who the players are, who are some of the realtors that are, seem to have a lot of consistent listings. I like Zillow for that fact. It's simple. It's user friendly. And the best part is your sellers know what Zillow is. So you can turn around and say, you know how to get on Zillow? Yeah, well, pull up Zillow and look at the house six doors down. That one sold for this price back here. Is your house better or worse than the house? Well, it's about the same. Well, you see what they sold it? You're asking this. You're kind of above the market. You can use that as a tool because the sellers know what that tool is. I like it. There's a thousand other systems, but that's one, I, that's one of the tools we use daily. Actually, I really like that because what, what you're kind of saying is, if you want to get into this business because the markets are changing so quickly, you need to have your finger on the pulse. You need to know Absolutely. what's going on because Absolutely. things can change from one week to the next. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm doing market research twice a week, constantly yeah. twice a week. And every time you search one house, you're looking at, well, what is selling around it? So now you're doing research on every house that you're, you're trying to comp out. Now, the thing that you got to understand, and here's what most people forget, and this is where I complimented you in the beginning, you implement very, very fast. That's not normal. Most people will get paralysis of analysis. They will turn around, they'll think they have a deal. They'll wait three or four weeks before they make a move on it and it's gone. In this market, you have to be lightning fast, but to be lightning fast is you have to be connected with somebody that can give you the answers you need immediately. I remember when I first moved to Charlotte, there was a realtor that I knew. She'd been in the business 30 years. I'd ask her about a neighborhood and she'd tell me, oh, you talk about the Jones house? I go, what do you mean? She goes, well, I sold them that house. She knew the market that well that she knew the people that lived on the streets in the neighborhoods that I was working in. And so you've got to, and so she can give me and tell me exactly what the value is without even looking or pulling, pulling up a computer program. So you don't have to be that good, but you get my point is that you can't wait. You have to move quickly, but you can do your due diligence. You know, if it's two o'clock in the morning and that's the only time you got to get on the computer to research a house, do it. You can't yeah. wait. You have to get the answers and you have to build your team to get the answers you need to make the offers you need. Yeah, I wouldn't exactly advise it, but I create chaos and then try and refine the chaos. And I have people around me that help me refine that madness. Well, <laughs> several <laughs> investors way back when, Ron the Grand is a perfect example. He said yeah. the money's in the chaos. The money's really? getting the house is everybody else is passing. Everybody else says, oh, it's too hard or it's too difficult or we can't find the seller or we can't this or that. The money is made working those and doing what other people are because, you know, the best thing you can do as an, a new investor is find something nobody else knows about. We call them off-market properties. If it's listed in the MLS system, you're wasting your time. If it's listed for sale on Zillow, you're almost wasting your time, unless you can see that it's, it's going to need 50 grand worth of work. Now, I'm not saying look at the only way to buy a house is to look at something that's run down. You have to find something that the seller has motivation. Now, you might have a coworker that works in a factory or works that works in a, a department store. Make sure they have their, your business cards. Pass them out to everybody. If you ever need to sell a piece of real estate and you never need to, you need to talk to somebody, 
those are the kind of, that's where the trickles in by knowing your network uh, and getting a, a circle of influence that's larger than yourself. Yeah. So just to circle around and tie a bow on this, I, I would say for, for anyone listening or watching, Greg is a transaction engineer. I have learned so much from Greg in terms of working with attorneys, paperwork, what a deal looks like, what isn't a deal, more importantly than what is a deal, what isn't a deal. And if you do have something that you want looking at, how, how do people contact you, reach you, or, or follow you, Greg? Here's what I will tell everybody. Um, I don't mind talking to people as long as you're bringing something to the table. Yeah. If you're here to have just to rehash the same interviews that we just did today, watch the interview again. If you want us to help and work together, bring something to the table or give me the, the strong impression that you're a person that doesn't take no for an answer. Years ago, when I had people come try to work with us, I would deliberately not answer the phone. They'd have to contact me three or four times or really try to, to get my attention before I realized they have the tenacity to be in this business. If you call one person and they say no and you walk away and you never call them a second time, you're never going to make it in this business. You have to be there when the seller is ready to make a decision. Um, so that means you have to stay in front of them and you possibly have to be learning and be able to communicate. So what I would tell somebody, if you are, if you are out there looking and you get something that makes that you think there's motivation and you have boots on the ground in the area that you're working with, we'll figure out a way to compensate both of us in the process. And I'll give you a phone number that goes right to my cell phone. Um, it is tracked and that it, uh, it's area code 910-621-7653. So 621-SOUL, 910-621-7653. And if you've got something that makes sense, let's talk about it. If you can't do it yourself, maybe we can structure and put something together. I hate to see you lose something you might be able to make three to five grand out. You know, maybe more depending on if you're bringing some of the monetary money into the equation. It's funny because early on when I first got that phone call from your VA and then they revealed who the person is behind the call and I did a little bit of research. I was like, who's Greg Campbell? I got to know who this guy is because he's doing similar transactions to, to what I'm, I'm getting into. And it was early on. So I was like, there's probably a lot I could learn from this guy. And I researched you and eventually got in contact with you. And then I think after the first phone call, I had to follow up significantly with you to start getting you on the phone, learn a little bit more about what I'm doing and how I can give value. So it, it wasn't by no means a one phone. Do you ever think you can get to the CEO of a company? There's a, there's a reason because their time is extremely valuable as your time is extremely valuable. If I'm choosing to do give information away to somebody, let's do it in a setting where we're talking to six or seven people at the same time. Because obviously I run a business, we're in the business every day. I love talking real estate, but if somebody's trying to learn and ask us, there's gotta be a two way, it's gotta be mutual beneficial. I've had, I've got a couple of people now that I'm probably gonna have to cut off because it's just question after question. But every time I ask them to do something, nothing gets done because they're afraid. And unfortunately, if you can't get over that fear of taking a step, you've gotta work on that first. Self-confidence is really something you have to work on. There's a lot of people today that just have low self-esteem. Low self-esteem is a killer. There are programs and things out there you can learn to do. But I tell you, once you start getting a little successes, a success would be, you know, here's the easiest way to get into the, to get started in this business talking to people is find a house that you know you don't want to buy. You know there's no way you're ever going to buy the house. Call it anyways. Why? Because what do you have to lose? 
and you know you're not going to buy it. So it's like, if you couldn't fail, how do you fail, right? What would you do if I told you there's no way you could ever fail? What would you be willing to venture out and try? So if you know you're never going to buy the house, go ahead and do it. Quick story, and I know we got to go. I had a house, one of the first houses I ever walked into. I sat down with a husband and wife, and he must have asked me a thousand questions. I was not in control of the conversation. I was shaking when I walked out of there. I was scared to death, but I sat in my car going, that was brutal. I go, wait a minute. He did me the best favor ever. He got me through that first live conversation, but he asked me everything I could ever be asked by a seller. All I have to do is come up with an answer for those, those questions. And sooner or later, it just boils down to what can I do for the seller that they can't do for themselves? What's in it for them? And if you keep that in mind, what's in it for them, it gets easier from that point on. Yeah. I'd say for anybody that is watching or listening that has Greg's phone number, don't call, shoot a text with your first name, your last name, and a reason for reaching out. Don't just randomly call or randomly text without giving your information. Um, and if you have a deal, put the deal in there and you can have a conversation there, but don't just blow Greg up to, you know, for nothing. Um, so I, I don't want you to be filled in a bunch of phone calls or texts. Yeah, I don't need to be changing my phone number. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but it's, it's something that um, you all have to start someplace. We yeah. all have to break the ice. You all have to get, you know, it's like the thing. You go to apply for a job. Well, what's your experience? Well, I'm trying to get experience. Well, what's your experience? I don't have experience. Well, come back when you get experience. Well, how do you get experience without starting someplace? So you're going to have to break the ice. But the best place, get into your rear groups. That's really important. Start making friendships. Bring, start finding out what you can bring to the table that you can offer people. And uh, you know, you'll get there. You'll get somebody locally that'll help you out. Or if you get to a point where... If you're not in my market, if you're outside the market, I'll listen. But again, I will probably shoot you down more often than I'll say yes, because most people think a deal is a deal when it's really not a deal. Yeah. And I've had so many people come back to me. So thank God we didn't buy that house because this is what really happened. You know, all I'm trying to do with most investors is make sure you don't make that one big early mistake that takes you out of the business. Yeah. Uh, make a mistake legally, make a mistake by buying something that now you're financially in, in trouble with. Um, the last thing you want to do is do something and not live up to what you agreed to the seller. You don't want to be that guy that, and there's enough of them out there that get a bad reputation because they, they promise they're going to buy the house and all they're doing is buying it to put it under contract to go out there and try to flip it before they have to close on. Well, you're going to get a bad reputation because you're not going to be able to close every transaction. I go to a seller. I've got a network of buyers. Uh, I may buy this one myself. I'm not sure at the moment, but let me run it by the group of people I work with. Let me see if we've got a buyer for you. Well, didn't you just tell the seller that you were going to wholesale their house and they know going in that you may not close on somebody else might. Yep. See, I'm saying it comes across so much easier. Then you're real. Then they realize you're not just somebody coming out of a seller. Yeah. Well, thank you, Greg. I really appreciate your time. It's Greg Campbell. He's a transaction engineer. Done anywhere, you know, 600, 700 transactions. So there's not a transaction that you probably haven't seen. So Thank you, Greg. I really appreciate awesome. it. Thanks for everything you've done for us, too. Appreciate it.